This episode is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. Daily Drip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elm? How about Elixir? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is, it takes only 5 minutes a day. We have a special coupon code just for Bike Shed listeners. If you sign up using the coupon code Bike Shed, that's all one word, you'll save $9 on your first month, which means you can try out the Elm topic for free. Don't forget to use the coupon code Bike Shed to show support for our podcast. Make learning part of your daily routine with DailyDrip.com. Are there any talks in particular you're excited about? Uh, I actually haven't even looked at the schedule. Nice. It's the first conference I'm going to in so long that I'm not speaking at. Oh, so wow. So I actually need to get back in the mode of like, oh, right, I can go look at other people's talks and I'm just going to... Yeah. Right after the last time we spoke, um, I then went and spoke at my first conference and it was a very weird shift to being a speaker and like I was sitting in other people's talks just kind of like watching them and their cadence and I'm like wow like you know she's doing a really good job breathing and she's not saying um or like too much (laughs) (laughs) and I became like a total weirdo in the audience not at all listening to the content of what they were just saying just being like those slides are so pretty (laughs) Um, oh oh my god so Katrina Owen and Sandy Metz in particular every time I see them speak their slides are so polished and mine are just like really plain because i just want to write my slides and markdown and i'm like boy that's slide inadequacy right there yeah what app do you use i use Dexset. so that's what i used as well it's really easy if you just want to write it markdown you're like i have a bunch of headers that i want to shout at you um but i found with code formatting like if you wanted to like show some code and then the next slide show like you've added a line it'll resize it automatically and so it's like really visually hard to follow i wasted hours like putting in spaces so that it would all line up properly yep yeah <laughs> like, uh, re- reveal lets you tweak things slightly better but uh-huh. i don't like its defaults as much so yeah. I, I i learned to just do exactly stuff like that like add, yeah. add like add a bunch of empty lines yep one that was really awkward on some of my earlier talks which were mostly about implementing features mm-hmm. um so i'd have a lot of code examples that were in uh the patch uh yep. format mm-hmm. and None of the color schemes are reasonable for patch. Uh. Almost all of them have removed lines as green. Oh, my God. That's the opposite of what you want. (laughs) Yeah. And so, like, the most readable color scheme, which is just the black on white that I started using after once somebody in the back shouted, we can't read, and I changed the color scheme, and everybody was like, yeah. (laughs) Mid-talk. It has added lines as blue and removed lines as green. That's not helpful to anybody. <laughs> yeah. So That's so funny. That was always fun. Yeah. It, it just encouraged me to stop having patches in my in my talks. Yep. <laughs> Maybe this isn't necessary. I also had the added fun of um so the conference is in New York and I'm from New York and so my grandmother came um oh. because she heard that I was speaking and I was like it's a technical conference you are obviously more than welcome to come I don't think anyone's going to card you at the door asking if you have a ticket and she didn't and she was like so proud and when I pointed out that they didn't card her because she was probably elderly looking she got very offended <laughs> <laughs> and I was like if they carded you you would have had to pay hundreds of dollars and she was like but then they would have thought I belonged it was very funny <laughs> 
I mean, in my experience, the only place that they actually are super anal about checking for tickets is lunch. Yes. Lunch was actually very delicious. Oh, yeah? What conference was it? Uh, it was DroidCon, New York City. Um, it's run by this company, Touch Lab, and um, DroidCon has become this kind of pretty huge Android conference. Um, they have them all around the world in all different cities. Um, and it's cool because I think a lot of the same speakers tend to go to a lot of the conferences. So yep. as like the average you know, conference goer, it's really nice because if you miss one, chances are if you, ca- you can catch them at the next one in a few weeks in a different city. So yep. that's pretty sweet. Um, but as a conference speaker, I'm always like, how do these people do their jobs and go to all these conferences? It's overwhelming. We don't, <laughs> basically. <laughs> it's the dream. <laughs> so in Rubyland, almost all, you know, so the people you see at every conference are people. So you'd see me, you'd see Sam Fippen, you'd see Steve Kalabnik, uh, Sandy Metz. And like, so Sam, this isn't true for anymore, but he used to be a self-employed consultant. Got it. Sandy is self-employed. Steve uh, works for Mozilla on open source full time. I work on open source full time. Yeah. So like most of the people who do that have jobs, have specifically picked jobs that make it very easy to do that. That makes sense. Or just abuse companies that have the like, we give you a bonus if you give a talk at a conference policy. Yep. <laughs> um, no, that's really cool, though. Do you find that um, when you speak, you still are able to like go to other sessions and really like listen or... Are you like just kind of preparing for your talk last minute? Depends on the session. I, I tend to actually not go to that many sessions. Um, I'm usually at conferences to network more than I am for the specific content in the sessions. Gotcha. Some of them I'll go if it's like a speaker who I, I think is really entertaining live or mm-hmm. if it's somebody that I want to be there to support. But yeah. oftentimes it's just like I can watch the video later. Yeah, I felt the same way. I also think having now given my first talk, it was hard to come up with like how to properly teach someone or an audience of people something in 40 minutes because you have to make a handful of assumptions about what they know, a handful of assumptions about things you're like, I can't teach this in 45 minutes and this other thing, so I'm just going to pray that you all know it. Um, and yeah, so I think that that's badly. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's hard, especially, I mean, I think maybe in, every, in any language to kind of find that right balance where the talk is still interesting and challenging while also, like, ignoring the fact that you can't, like, set it up by explaining all this stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big revelations for me that I think I, I think I originally got from Ben Ornstein was just that your job isn't necessarily always to teach. Like, your mm-hmm. primary job is to be entertaining. And oh. hopefully they learn something from, from you entertaining them. Yeah. But, like, if you're not entertaining, you're going to lose their attention and nobody's going to learn anything anyway. That's so interesting. I had the very, like, in my mind when I was preparing for the talk, I was thinking of, like, a stand-up comic giving a routine, and then everyone in the audience is smiling and laughing, and then I gave this, like, very technical talk, and no (laughs) one in the audience is, like, their faces are all, like, confused or staring, and I was up there, like, holy crap, I'm a terrible entertainer. (laughs) Yeah, alternatively, that's more of, yeah, just people's neutral... Yep. Human neutral face looks terrifying from on stage. Yes. My very first talk that I gave was at Windy City Rails a few years back, and I opened with a joke. (laughs) And um, Jessica Kerr, who's a a person in Ruby uh, and other languages, found it funny. So I just she the, left. Just she left. <laughs> she has a very like specific laugh, and I and I know that it was her because that was the only person in the entire oh. room who laughed at it. That's so brutal. 
Yeah, that that throws off your mojo for a talk. Yeah, I gave my talk. That the room that I was in had a podium, and uh, they were having some technical difficulties. And since everything was being recorded, I there was probably five minutes before the talk where I was just standing up behind this podium. And uh, do you watch The Office? Yeah. Okay, so there's the episode in The Office where Dwight receives some award. And Jim is helping him prepare for his acceptance speech. Oh, and they're doing, yeah. By showing him all the different, like, dictators. So he's doing, like, banging on the desk and, like, what I thought was this, like, let's just kill this awkward five minutes where I'm just standing up here behind a podium. I, like, was like, has anyone seen The Office? And I basically realized if anyone had missed the part where I said, have you seen The Office? They would walk into this room and I was just, like, looking like a dictator. (laughs) Oh, it's perfect. Yeah. I don't know. Brutal. I sort of have like retired from speaking. I'm doing air quotes for for the for listeners. Uh, I've sort of retired from speaking as of two weeks ago. Uh, and the last talk I gave was in Russia, and it was a bilingual conference. And so there were a lot of people in the audience who didn't speak English or didn't speak English very well. And so they had tra- they had like little portable translators that you'd wear, mm-hmm. so that the English uh, the people who only spoke English would have the Russian talks translated, and people who didn't speak English would have the English talks translated. Um, yeah. But it was kind of awkward giving the talk because I'd make a joke and like half-ish of the audience <laughs> would laugh and yeah. then there would be a slight delay and then the other half of the audience would laugh. Yeah. I actually don't know the answer to this. In other languages, at least in like Latin languages, do you still program in English? Yes. Interesting. I guess you kind of have to because like all the val, var, funk, fun, all that kind of stuff. It right. Would be... But even even in languages that allow like well, so Latin's one that that's one thing, right? Because in right. Java, like you can't even have non-Latin uh, right. identifiers. Yeah. In Ruby, Swift, yeah. Scala, I think Rust, most modern-ish languages, you can have any uh, valid Unicode character as an identifier. Mm-hmm. Or there's a speci- there's actually a specific like section of Unicode that the is... first half. It's like yeah. the first bucket or section. But like excludes white space characters and but yeah. yeah, so you could totally like program in Japanese if you want to and have your classes and methods all with. Actual Japanese, but, but, but yeah. people like you'll often see methods named in their foreign language, but the bulk of it, like yeah, you're still you're, yeah. you're, you're the, the language itself is still English. Yeah, I wonder how difficult that is to under like to come at it from being a native speaker of other languages to try and come and learn programming to like understand all those concepts on top of having to learn English at least right. to the point of like being able to write code. I mean, it's it's a problem. Yeah, <laughs> it seems like a problem. <laughs> it's one of those awkward like. Right. So even though the vast majority of the Ruby core team is Japanese, the official language of Ruby is English. Right. Because not very accessible friendly. Well, it's also led to like Unicode can be a very polarizing issue for some people. A friend of mine just tweeted the other day, uh, remind your this a reminder that UTF-8 is racist um, because <laughs> because it gives preference to Latin based languages. Whereas yeah. a UTF-16 character that is more than one byte in UTF-8 would be three bytes in UTF-8 as opposed to two bytes in UTF-16. But, like, the web world in particular has given humongous preference to UTF-8 because we're transmitting HTML and CSS. Yeah. Which will contain Latin characters even if the co- a lot of, like, a, a significant portion of the content will be Latin characters even if the content itself is not Latin. Right. Which, like, has the same roots of just of just the general, like, yeah, programming is kind of done in English. Yeah, we run into that um, in Android programming a lot. It is relatively easy, um, and I say that very kind of air quotes, um, to uh, localize your app because right. all strings um, are accessed via string identifiers. So you have a giant XML file with just kind of key value pairs. 
But you do run into this interesting thing where in your mind, anytime you'd have any sort of label or text in your app, it's really easy to be like, okay, let me pull this out and put this in string resources. But what I think is harder to remember is contextually, like how you name and use the resources would be different in another language. So if you had a resource for done, and you ha- you were using done everywhere in the app, and in some places it was like the okay, I'm done with this section button, and in other places, it, you know, contextually meant something else. If you translated that to a different language, they might have a subtle difference in like I'm done with this section, or I maybe done was a bad example, but like save, you know, has these right. words that kind of have multiple meanings, and even in English and then in alter- other languages, it becomes really difficult. Actually, the, the system's remarkably similar to how it works in Android uh, for internationalization and Rails apps. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest difference being that we don't have tooling that warns us when we put string literals. Mm. <laughs> so most apps, like, uh, ThoughtBot has the best practice of, like, put everything in IE10N because it makes testing easier. Right. Which is good because then it also makes it easier to internationalize it when you inevitably do need to internationalize it. But the majority of the world doesn't, like, doesn't yeah. by default, and it leads to just problems down the line. Yeah. Pluralization is actually one that's kind of fun and tricky because uh, in the English-speaking world, it's we have one, we have many, and zero mm-hmm. counts as many. Yep. Uh, and in some languages, there's different pluralizations for zero, one, two, three, and many. Um, yeah, I only know about that because of Android. I think in pluralization, you can declare zero, one, many, and other. Um, I might be missing one or two more other cases, but I remember the first time I was reading it, I was like, what is the difference between two of these? And to their credit, the documentation is actually like, here's an example in Russian where it's different. And like they yeah. show you the sentence and I was like, I can't read this, but thank you. <laughs> I can see visually that it is different. So in Rails, we're all convention over configuration. Mm-hmm. So um, your classes that you create to access database tables Mm-hmm. We assume by default that the table it's accessing is the name of the class, but pluralized. I see. Now, the first problem there is, okay, cool, your classes are all in English. Right. <laughs> your classes are all in English, or this just doesn't work. Yep. And then the second problem is pluralization is really hard Yeah. to do generically. So it's basically a series of regexes mm-hmm. of like getting to increasingly special cased. Oh, God. And then finally, just the, these are actual special cases, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's always going to be incomplete. And so we ended up just freezing it. And now we generate a file where you can add your own special cases for the stuff that we do wrong, because yep. fixing, I'm doing air quotes again for yeah. the listeners, <laughs> fixing these bugs would break people's apps. Yeah. So in Diesel, just remembering the, the nightmare that we had in Rails, uh, Diesel being the ORM that I'm building in Rust, um, mm-hmm. I have a similar thing where there are a few places where I need to assume a table name. And mm-hmm. all of those cases, my my pluralization algorithm is I stick an S at the end. <laughs> and if there that's are, not good enough, specify yeah. it. I'm not even going to try to solve this problem for you. That, I mean, I'm sure there are worse solutions. That sounds at least consistent. I think it probably covers like roughly half of half. Maybe yeah. maybe slightly more than half. But it's like, yeah. it's not really 80-20, but it's as close to 80-20 as I'm going to go. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's really funny. Yeah, actually, I think stuff like that is interesting in um, in other languages where there isn't necessarily this, like, like if you spoke to a bunch of developers, they would all kind of agree that this is the convention, but it's not written down anywhere. And so if you're trying to learn a new language or you're trying to, like, figure out, because I actually I was just recently writing um, some SQL tables for this app I was using, and the app is entirely in Kotlin. And because Kotlin is so new, I was wondering for the people who have been doing Kotlin for however much longer before me, if they had kind of already established 
conventions or paradigms or anything like that. And it's kind of really hard to Google because all the other keywords kind of pick up first. So it's like, here's how someone implemented one thing. You're like, I don't care how you one person did this. It's like, I want the aggregate of the community saying like, if I were to read a SQLite database in Kotlin, this is what I expect it to look like. Right. And it's just missing. Yeah. Searching for best practices in general can be hard. Yeah. Well, I guess when you're searching for articles, you can search for Go, uh, Golang, rather. Yeah. Trying to do any, like, measurements of metrics about Go, like how much is that language being used, are completely impossible. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Because nobody says Golang in job listings, they just say Go, but so do a lot of other job listings. (laughs) I... Yeah, I, I've also been, um, we're trying to hire an Android developer. So if any listeners are living in New York City and interested in Android development, please contact us. And we've been having a really interesting time kind of reviewing resumes as it's not a great platform for kind of evaluating engineers because it lists like your life story in a very weird format. But any sentence you'd write about a previous job, almost by definition, like there's no way to write that and make yourself sound impressive and not like kind of egomaniacal and also like normal because you're either going into great detail about like I built an app or no detail you're like I built an app or going into great detail and you're like and I use Jira and then we use Trello and I you know we had agile meetings and it's like I don't need to know when you went to the bathroom just like what did you build (laughs) (laughs) yeah so I hope that that's something that changes speaking of conventions um the resume just doesn't like seem to make sense anymore or at least in engineering. I feel like the cover letter is more important than the resume, not just in engineering, but just like in general. Yes. Kind of get your story out there and explain in English words, you know, why you want this, why it's interesting, and gives yeah. you an opportunity to kind of break from this like chronological format that is just terrible. Yeah. So what's going on in the Android world? Anything, anything? It's been a couple months since we last yeah. did one of these, right? Android. Uh, so I'm developing Kotlin. Kotlin just came out with a... Uh, 1.5 today, which is pretty exciting. Um, a bunch of kind of minor IDE fixes, which just make my life a lot easier, uh, which is nice. Some cleanup around lambdas and um, iterables. Uh, so previously, for example, something common is like you want to check if a list is empty. And if it isn't empty, you want to iterate over it. But it wouldn't let you iterate over an empty list. And so now they kind of updated that to they're like, we're going to assume that if there's nothing in the list, we just obviously won't perform whatever function you wanted us to on kind of each index or each item. So little things like that will just make the code cleaner. Other things, Android released uh, Constraint Layout. Uh, They released it a little while ago, but it went from being, it was going up kind of the beta chain and it got all the way to beta nine and then it jumped to alpha two (laughs) because that's how we count now. (laughs) Okay. But I just, like, I saw it on Twitter, like, everyone was so excited, and I was like, I'm, is this an old tweet, or am I just backwards? So, so what is constraint layout? Uh, constraint layout is Android's kind of answer to um, what iOS has auto layout. In Android, there was kind of two or three options that you had previously, which is, one was a frame layout, which is literally a box, and everything kind of layers on top of itself. Right. Um, all the children layer on top. Uh, linear layout. Linear layout, it's either horizontal or vertical, and then relative layout, and you start putting things relative to the other ones. Yep. But a lot of times you want some sort of hybrid combination, and so you end up with these super nested layouts, and nesting in layouts in Android is just never a good idea. So they introduce constraint layout, which kind of is the, it solves a lot of those problems, and it allows you to 
use the concept of like weights and also relativity to the parent or to other children and keep it all like within one level of nesting, which is really nice. Sounds sounds useful. Yeah, and the design tooling actually that came along with it was really cool because um, all Android layouts are written in XML, and for the longest time, I don't think anyone was using the like actually you have to use your mouse and build this layout. Um, <laughs> but the tooling for constraint layout is really it's nice, and it actually makes you want to use your mouse. Hmm. So that's pretty exciting. I really wish we had even linear layout and relative layout actually on the web. Oh yeah. Where we just like you can set width by percentage. <laughs> You can try to do things with height. It yep. won't work. <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think compared to, like, before iOS had auto layout, um, because iOS had such a limited set of screen sizes, it was pretty safe to be like, I'm going to have, I want this to be exactly this size. Whereas right. on Android, we always kind of had our layouts as being match parent or wrap content. Yep. Which kind of solved a lot of problems, but it as people start developing and designing more, you realize you couldn't do what the designer had given you. And you're like, it's just, it's never going to look like that. So you've got to work with me here because I can't just like put it in the middle, but slightly off like 30% in the height. I don't, I don't have percentages. So now we do through a lot of different ways. That's cool. But I th yeah. I thought there were percentages. Uh, there well, there, percentages? there is percent relative layout and percent frame layout, um, but those are separate libraries. Um, there's also weights, but that's not quite percent. And now in constraint layout, we have percents again. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I know it's not actually that bad and like it's easy to reason about, but I just remember when I was first learning Android, I'm like, why are there 15 different units here? Yep. What, the, what the hell is a DP and, an, and why is it different than an SP? <laughs> yeah. Um, SP is actually really interesting for accessibility. Uh, so right. for listeners who don't know Android, um, there are several different um, units of measure. Um, so one is DP, which is uh, density in pixels. And that's kind of Android's solution to the fact that there are 40 million different Androids and different devices and screen sizes. Uh, there's some way to convert from pixels to DPs, but you design your whole app in DPs so that everything kind of looks right on everyone's phone. And for text, you use SP, and I don't remember what the S stands for. Scalable. Um, or scalable. Scaling. Yeah, and it's used for text. And it's cool because the more work that Google does with accessibility really relies heavily on that. So if you were to go into user settings and say that I want all my text to be super huge because I have bad eyesight, it uses that and knows how to scale that to what is large and all the different sizing. So if you don't use SPs and accidentally use pixels and you see it on your phone, you're like, oh, it looks fine. Know that people with accessibility issues will not be happy with you. Yeah. So speaking of screen densities, mm. I'm actually curious if this has changed at all, because um, when I sort of first started doing Android, majority of the ecosystem was HDPI. Mm -hmm. MDPI was still a thing you had to care about, and there was yep. like two phones on LDPI. Yep. And the max that they had available was XHDPI. Yep. And then when I stopped doing Android, it was you cared about XDP XHDPI, XXHDPI, and XXXHDPI. That is I'm still... I'm assuming that yeah. has gone up to four now. I think most of the apps that I ship, it's mostly still around three. So they haven't they haven't just shifted over. There's one more humongous size, but that's what they call the Play Store icon, and so that's like the app, that's what they use for um, the Play Store listing, which is I imagine kind of what the next big one is. Right. They haven't just removed just totally L, M, and, and H, and nope. just removed the X's. My biggest complaint about the L, M, and H is that in Android Studio, because of the alphabet, it like lines them all up alphabetically, which is out of size order. 
Oh, so yeah. And I they're always in a directory where you would contextually know. Exactly. So it's like, I wish you would have picked just any other letter so it would have lined up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very minor nitpick. Huh. Well, good to know there are still unnecessary X's in front of everything. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and if you're adding the launcher icon, so it's like the app that you would see in the icon you see on your home screen, that's not in L's or X's or anything. That's in MIP maps. So it's a MIPMAP XX HTTPI, MIPMAP LHTPI. And to be honest with you, that's one of those I actually have no idea what that is or why that is. I just know that if you're adding your launcher icon, it needs to be in the MIPMAP folders. I'm guessing it's for optimization and things, but it's just fun to say. Because of reasons. MIPMAP. That is kind of a fun word to say. (laughs) Anything else fun going on in Android land? Um, well, the Pixel came out, which is very yes. exciting. It is honestly one of the better smartphones um, I've ever had, uh, especially coming over from the Nexus 5X. I had a few Nexuses before that, um, but this is the first one that it's actually fast and the animations are pleasant and the camera's incredible. The color and the detail is like remarkable. So I've been very, very pleased with it. Uh, the kind of insider Android, I don't want to call it drama, but in uh, the Pixel uses a new launcher and mm-hmm. the calendar app now just like on ios shows you the actual date which it never used to do <laughs> and so now all the developers are like is there going to be a new api like we have we don't know how they're doing it because all you do is you put your icons in the mipmap folders and they're static so it might be coming out in the future that you can actually customize and update your app but icons that's just, it's just it's just a widget though that's the question. Is like, you could is, fake it with a widget. Right. You could fake it with a widget, but it doesn't seem to be that's what they're doing, at least with the contacts app. So I just imagine this horrible future where apps, like, instead of they try to make their widgets like just these tiny icons where it's like you're going to, like, your whole Twitter feed or like in this tiny icon so you don't even have to open the app and use all your memory and data. And <laughs> right. You hate everything. <laughs> I've been thinking about upgrading. I may or may not have gotten one of those for um, a person who may or may not be listening for Christmas. Um, but I, have, I haven't purchased one for myself. And I've been thinking about getting one. But I also have the 5X. I'm like, this phone seems fine. Yeah. Having upgraded from the 5X, you will be like very pleasantly surprised. Is the battery life better? Uh, yeah. The battery life is better. I think the big difference, uh, the big kind of thing that I wish was better was um, the like auto dimming. I think iOS does a really nice job of like, you know, contextually like brightening and less brightening (laughs) your phone, dimming your phone. And the Pixel's still not great at that. So sometimes I'll like turn it on at night or like get a text message and I'm like, oh dear God, like I don't have retinas. (laughs) (laughs) It burns us. (laughs) Yeah. That. But it is, it's a much, much more pleasant phone experience. The apps all open very quickly. Like it's, you feel like you're a person again in the 21st century using the phone. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. I'll have to think about getting one then. And Google Assistant is so fun. Is it? I've heard good things about it. It's pretty smart. I think it's one of the better, you know, bots for context. So if you ask a question, you can ask a follow-up question and then a follow-up question. Yeah. So if you're like, I'm going to Portland, like how far away am I from Portland? What's the weather there? Do I need a jacket? Like it'll keep up with you. Yeah, I saw I saw the tweet of somebody like, "Okay, show me a picture of nine puppies," and they got a, they got a bunch of pictures with exactly nine puppies, and then they followed oh up with, God. "Okay, now 15," and it showed yeah. them a bunch of pictures with exactly 15 <laughs> puppies. That's um, amazing. Which was like hilarious, but also yeah. quite impressive that like yeah. the bot had the context to keep that conversation going, and that they knew exactly how many puppies were in every of the, one of these pictures. 
I think that Google Photos is one of the most like underrated apps in the Google kind of suite. Oh, yeah. Just searching for the photo that you need and it always finds it. it. Always. You could search by anything, by date. You're like by person, um, by event. Like if I you search for graduation, it pulls up like people in caps. It'll find me in the background, like in a graduation cap. And it's like, I forgot that picture existed because I was barely in it. Mine has picked up on what Marshall Codex is and the fact that I worked on it. And so I've searched a couple of times for rendering bugs from Marshall Codex and it finds the screenshots I took of things being weird. That's insane. So, so smart. Um, Yeah, I don't like to think too hard about, I think, kind of to the trusting or naive users when they're like, oh, we're going to offer free storage for all your photos. And it's like, so you can use them to get better at this. And like, yeah. I only take pictures of puppies and, you know, home decor, so I don't care. But I imagine there are other people who do care, and maybe I should, and I should protect all my puppy photos. But <laughs> for now, yeah, I'm happy I mean, to let Google have them. It's I think that's one of those where, like, they're the people who are concerned and just actually avoid Google because they're right. concerned. Yeah. They're the people who are concerned but don't feel concerned enough to find the alternatives. And then I think I've just surrendered to it. Yeah somebody's gonna have the data yeah i also think about like the benefit of like photos working the way that you expect it to is like the only way it's gonna get better is if i let it try right so we could do an entire episode about the privacy concerns around (laughs) around software um cool yeah show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 88 as always comments and reviews on itunes and google play are greatly appreciated if you have feedback on this episode or any other, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bike shed.fm, or leave a comment on the episode's show notes. Thank you so much.